All right, so the reading from today will be from Exodus uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. That is found on page uh, 61 in your Bibles. Again, that's Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven, in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we uh, give you thanks. That's pretty. That's a pretty loud prayer. I sound like Darth Vader. <laughs> okay, Shane's gonna. Sorry, I didn't. I hope y'all weren't entering into the spirit of the Lord during that prayer. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I. I Second guessed it when you said, Is this it? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the time that we have to be, be together to worship you, to open your word, and pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak through your word by your spirit to bear fruit in the lives of those who are in Christ and to bring others near to you. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who will not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I do not know, have no way of knowing, the marker had fallen on that page of my father's Bible simply by coincidence, or if it reveals something crucial about what drove him to suicide. But the fact that the question, like the question we ask of all suicides, is unanswerable, makes the second possibility inevitably more compelling and more sinister. Who is the egomaniac speaking these words? Who would demand across centuries that we love him? A historical stranger, 
more than our own fathers, mothers, sons, and daughters. And that's from Eric Reese's Spiritual Biography in American Gospel, published in 2009. You can piece together from the reading that Reese's dad took his own life. It happened when he was three years old. Bible Reese was reading from belonged to his father, who was a Christian minister. The ribbon had remained unmoved for 20 years. The first scripture read from that Bible that belonged to a father who tragically took his own life was read by a still grieving son. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Who is the egomaniac speaking those words? The fact of the matter is that young men coming to grips with the tragic decisions of their fathers are not the only ones who struggle with the words from Matthew chapter 10. God's merciful, he's loving, he's powerful, he's all-present, he's morally perfect. We are frightened at the prospect of his judgment, but we cede the right to him to judge. And we hope for his forgiveness. And for those of us that are Christians, all of the things we would attribute to God, we're prepared to attribute to Jesus as well. But the jealousy makes us uncomfortable. Exclusivity of it. God is by his own admission jealous. The jealousy of God is a fact of the Bible. And to reject the jealousy of God while following maybe some of your higher moral instincts is at the same time to reject the biblical witness. It's problematic. Jesus says in his own words, if someone places love of even the closest relations, father, mother, son, or daughter, above him, they're not worthy of him. How in the world are we to make sense of that? And can we become better people in the understanding of it. Yeah? Not just how can we make sense of it, but can this not just complement, but enhance the lives you and I live as Christians are questions I'd like to explore with you as we continue our series on the Ten Commandments as we look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. And I have some questions that you and I can think through as we talk about uh, these issues. What is the, the source of God's jealousy? What's it, what's it founded upon? Are there windows from our experience through which we can make some sense of it? That's, that's number one. Number two, what does the jealousy of God mean for our relationship with Him? And uh, number three, what are the problems of God's jealousy? Yeah in terms of his relationship with us. So, so those three questions we'll work through. Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 8, we'll be looking at together. And let's, let's just start here. What is the source of God's jealousy? Well, let's talk for a moment about what, what the problem is of, of jealousy and why that makes us morally uncomfortable with God. You and I live in a world full of lovely things, and it turns out that you and I are people with an enormous capacity to love. Yeah. We love all kinds of things, and the reason that you and I have problems 
with jealousy, moral problems with jealousy, is, uh, is it's to admit the possibility that there could be a person that could come into our lives that would demand priority over all the other lovely things in the world. And we have had experiences, many of us, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment, we have had experiences of this where there's a toxic kind of jealousy that actually prohibits the enjoyment of any other lovely things. We'll hear later that's not the kind of jealousy that God has for us. But I am, as a human being, full of love for lovable things. I love the outdoors. I love getting lost in the outdoors. I love outlaw country music. Like Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Merle Haggard. I love to sing happy tunes with the top down on a sunny day. I love to sing sad tunes on the way home from work late at night. I love getting lost in sad tunes on the way home from work late at night. I like getting mildly sunburned. And I love having just enough whiskey around friends. Because I'm full of love for lovable things doesn't mean I love all things equally. There's a hierarchy to the things that I love. There are material things I love, like my house. We spent time trying to find the right one. We stretched to afford it. There are material objects I love, like a, an old blue chair that my wife hates. <laughs> and she knows that uh, she must not get rid of it. There are things I love more than a house and a chair, people I love, like my friends. I love them so much that their faults are easy for me to look over, for the most part. <laughs> In crowds, I seek them out, and I notice something happens to me as I seek them out in a crowd. I can notice they might be talking to someone else. And I wonder why they're not talking to me. More than my friends, I love my children. I love coming home from work. I love when they bound to the door. I love their touch and their smell. I love their attention. And I feel an ache these days because it happens more than it used to when they say we're going to play with our friends because it means that they're not going to play with me. Most of all, I love my wife. I want her nearby with me. I want her attention, and I want her love, and I want her physical and emotional and intellectual love. I don't want her to share those things with anyone. So I've learned something thinking about love. I've learned that I'm full of love, I have enormous capacity for love in a world of lovable things. Some of these things I love more than others, and I'm able to recognize the things I love more than others. Because the higher up they go in the hierarchy, the more I want them exclusively to me. And so, I'm jealous for the things I love most. And that's not a moral hazard. Far from making egomaniacs, that's a kind of love 
that's only made perfect by jealousy, you see. What does that have to do with the Ten Commandments? Well, we only need to look to the opening words of the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And I, I want to point out just two very simple things to you. The first thing to point out to you is God's self-description. I'm the Lord your God. Yours a possessive pronoun. It signifies belonging to a person or people whom the speaker is addressing. So the commandments begin. With something that could be rendered, I'm the Lord, the God who belongs to you. And it reminds me that every wedding I have ever officiated, I have always whispered to the groom, she belongs to you now. And I've always whispered to the bride, he belongs to you. He's your man, and only your man. She's your woman. No one else's. Yeah? It's a, it's a love that's perfected by jealousy. And what does God say in the commands where he says anything else? I'm the Lord. The God who belongs to you. That's the first thing I want you to notice. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. Uh, the second thing I want you to notice is that God says he brought the people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery... The intimacy implied in that statement would make more sense to an ancient Jew than I think it makes to us. And it would make more sense to them because they would recognize that under the law, the closest living relative's responsibility to someone who falls into debt or someone who's sold into slavery, it's the closest living relative's responsibility to rescue them. Why does God rescue Israel from bondage in Egypt? The prophets didn't miss the point at all. Hosea chapter 11, God brought his son out of Egypt. It's a messianic verse that applies to Jesus for sure. But first it applied to Israel. Out of Egypt I've called my son. I'm the Lord, the God who belongs to you. I redeemed you because I'm your closest living relative. I'm your father. You're my son. And now, now we understand the source of God's jealousy, don't we? Because in the hierarchy of love, God is a lover. In a world full of lovely things that he made. But the psalmist lets us know that he loves everything that he made. God doesn't despise the frivolous things like getting lost in the woods or listening to Waylon Jennings. God doesn't despise a little, or shall we say, just the right amount of whiskey with friends. Because he gave wine to make glad the heart of man. He loves everything that he made. But there's a hierarchy of things he loves most. Out of Egypt I called my son, you see. It's a love made perfect by jealousy. That's the root of it. Now, now what's it mean? What does it mean for you and I that 
that we have a jealous God. This is the second thing. Well, I'll tell you, uh, simply it means, it means exclusivity. There's a, there's a kind of love I want from my wife that I don't want her to have for with anyone else. You shall have no other gods before me is what the commandment says in verse 3. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or, or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There's something I want from you I don't want you to give to anyone else. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What's the big deal about the Sabbath? Well, there's a lot of interesting things to be said about the Sabbath. I, I wish we could say all of them. But I'll just say the things I think that matter most of the discussion we're having right now. There's a kind of jealousy that's toxic. Yeah? And uh, it's the kind of jealousy of, 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 the, of the clingy girlfriend. Or the jealous boyfriend. The clingy girlfriend that will not let the man enjoy anything without her magnetized to his shoulder. There's a kind of toxic jealousy that will not permit the woman's eyes to land on another man or to speak to another man even in the most innocent kind of friendship. There's a toxic jealousy that is not just exclusive, it's domineering and it's oppressive and it's suffocating. How do we know this is not the kind of jealousy that the Lord has for us? The Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Six days. To enjoy being a lover in a world full of lovely things. And those of you that have a hierarchy of love, and those of you who have been deeply in love, you know that the Beloved is never absent when you're away. The beloved's always either in the back of the mind or coming to the forefront. The beloved is dictating the way you spend your time. I can't stay past four. I promise to throw a baseball around the backyard. I can't go with you on Saturday. We're going to see a movie with the most lovely things in my life. Just because you're out in a way doesn't mean the beloved is absent. But it does mean the beloved is secure enough to let you out in a way for six days. And this is a wonderful gift of God hidden in plain sight in the midst of a discussion about jealousy that God is secure enough to let you enjoy the world. But he wants a day. He wants a day. 
Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's not just a day to rest from your work. It's not just a day having read the articles in the Atlantic that tell you how overburdened and stressed and tied to work and the cell phones we all are. And we all need to kind of cut the cord and get away. That's smart. But the Sabbath day is about a day with the Lord more than anything else. In the ancient world, I don't know if you know this or not, in the ancient world they would ritually prepare a temple for six days. Put the furniture in place. Say prayers by this column and prayers by that column. Paint images on the walls, perhaps set candles up in the front. But it was on the seventh day, having the temple fully prepared on the seventh day, the priests of that temple would call the God of the temple to come and rest with his people. Because rest is a euphemism for fellowship. Rest is a euphemism for hanging out. It's a euphemism for communion, for exchanging life. So when God invites us to rest on the Sabbath day, it's a euphemism for a day with Him. A day for enjoying Him. A day where, where our hopes and dreams and loves <coughs> and worries are emptied on Him. In a way that we wouldn't empty them on anyone else. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it every day of the week. But it's a day just for Him. What does God's jealousy mean for our relationship with Him? It means it's not toxic. It's not oppressive. It's not domineering. But it is exclusive. What's the problem with a jealous God? Well, the problem with a jealous God is that He desires a relationship with us. Where we are his highest love. The problem is we don't desire it back. There's a book called Love and the Ruins. Written by Walker Percy. I love the full title of this book. It's called Love and the Ruins. Adventures of a Bad Catholic. At a time near the end of the world. The best Catholics are always the bad ones by the way. <laughs> The book set sometime in the near future, America has become increasingly fragmented. There's fragmentation between husbands and wives, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. Even within the little book's main character, his name is Tom Moore. He is an internally fragmented man. And the source of Tom's fragmentation, the reason for his internal division that causes enormous anxiety and fear and sorrow is his love. It's not the lack of love. That is his problem. It's that his love is ruined. That's his problem. It's misdirected. It doesn't, it doesn't work properly. It's for all the wrong things. In Tom's own words, he says, I believe in God and the whole business, but I love women the best. And music and science next. Whiskey after that. God for my fellow man hardly at all. It's a love in the ruins. 
and probably the great source of the frustration and the anger present in your life and present in my life is that we've got misdirected and ruined love. The call of the office to be the hero, the power man, the savior, the breadwinner, to land the big account where all the employees can say, you the man. <laughs> and to come home and realize you left the socks on the floor and the toilet seat up. <laughs> and the people in your home know that you're not the man. <laughs> and you begin to love the place where they tell you something is, that's not true more than the place where your highest loves abound. And you wonder what happened? When did we get distant and confused? Where did the time go? I was out pursuing the wrong things. My disordered love. How do you set it right? How can you put the emphasis on the right syllable? <laughs> Where can you unruin the love and get it back in place? Well, you'll know that it's very hard to make yourself love someone. But that love has to be won to a certain degree. And what the Christian gospel teaches us is that our love may have been ruined, but God's love never was. There is never a point in the existence of God where he was willing to say, I am not the Lord who belongs to you. That never changed. I'm the Lord, your God, who belongs to you. You're my son. You're my daughter. And I so loved all of you that to prove it, I sent the most precious thing I had. We collectively ruined ourselves to unruin you. Put your heart back where it needs to be so that as the pieces of it fell back into place, the exclusive but untoxic, jealous love of God would begin to rule the life and teach us how to love all things well, you see. That was his plan. So, let me just close with two quick things. Here's one thing for those of you that are in Christ. And this is something that you'll hear us say a lot. 
is that when Christians think about what's going wrong in their life morally, they'll often think about uh, what's going wrong in their life morally as a sin problem. I do these things. I need to stop doing these things. And I will start doing these things. And in that, I have summed up for you why I despise the season of Lent. <laughs> it's a season that celebrates the worst understanding of how human beings change. It doesn't need to. It's just in my experience it does. People don't change uh, because they've come to a realization of doing something they shouldn't be doing. <laughs> People change because what they used to love, they don't love as much as they've come to love something else. You've got a young man and he doesn't bathe and his clothes are wrinkled and he has no prospects. And his parents wonder why he sleeps in until 11. How come he's not filled out a resume? What's wrong with this young man? And then the next day, this young man is clean shaven and his clothes are pressed and he's on the hunt for a job. What do you think happened to that young man? It's a girl. <laughs> Always a girl. Yeah. A new love has come into his life. And what does Jesus say about the keeping of the commandments? Not if you try hard, you'll keep my commandments. If you discipline yourself, you'll keep my commandments. What does he say? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How do we come to love Jesus enough not to fully keep the commandments, but to begin to keep them? Where does it begin? Not that we loved him, but he loved us and gave his only son. Yeah. It comes from long, endless meditations on God giving the most precious thing he had until there was nothing left to give. I begin to love God. I begin to keep his commandments. Yeah. You don't have a sin problem. You have a love problem. You fix the love problem through the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That's thing number one. Thing number two, for those of you that are uh, exploring Jesus and, and thinking about Jesus, <coughs> then uh, I suppose what I'd like, I'd like for you to think about is this. I had a dreadful summer when I was 22 years old. I just graduated from the Citadel with honors. I was on my way to Oxford University, which was the number one ranked university in the whole world at the time. I could not get a job to save my life. Nobody wanted me. The only people that would hire me was a farm with work release farms. So it was me and a bunch of inmates they let out for the day, pulling weeds at a farm in South Alabama. Nobody else would have me. I still work for a farmer. He's, he's the Lord of the harvest. And he says the harvest is ripe. That's not the only thing that hasn't changed. Because he's still the only one that will have me. What I mean is, no one knows me the way he does. 
no one knows me the way he does. And knowing me fully, I know he's the only one that would take me. You are hungry for love in a world of lovable things. It's not just that you have a need to love, you have a need to be loved. We proclaim a God who will have with exclusivity and a healthy jealousy that will give you worth and value and dignity. The only thing that's required of you is to believe something that's too good to be true. But the glory of the gospel is that it actually is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time to meditate on the law and to see some of the goodness of it set forth in the character of the God we worship. Pray that you would shape us to be just as jealous for you as you are for us. We ask this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.